They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome, and welcome to a couple of notes. Each episode, my co-host and wife Caitlin and I will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This episode, we read Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid, featuring the rise of a legendary 70s rock band and the infamous breakup at the peak of their popularity. Now take out your red pens, because we have a couple of notes. Taylor Jenkins Reid is an American author and film producer who first achieved huge critical acclaim and success with the release of her fifth novel, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Since then, she's won multiple Goodreads Choice Awards, including the 2019 Historical Fiction category for Daisy Jones and the Six. In short, she's very popular and highly recommended. In the late 1960s, love is free, drugs are plentiful, and rock and roll is the future, baby. Daisy Jones is living it up in Los Angeles, the daughter of wealthy but absent parents who don't care that she spends every night on the Sunset Strip, popping pills and running with musicians twice her age. She's the Kim K of her day, on the covers of magazines for being rich and beautiful and wild. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, brothers Billy and Graham Dunn are chasing fame the way every teenage boy did in those days. They're starting a band. With Billy as the frontman and Graham on lead guitar, they pull in some buddies, Warren on drums, Pete on bass, and Chuck on rhythm guitar. They are great, but then the Vietnam War comes along, and Chuck gets drafted and dies. Rest in peace, Chuck. This hits the band hard, but they don't give up, bringing in new guitarist Pete's brother, Eddie, and a keyboard player named Karen. They name themselves The Six, and before too long, they catch the eye of manager Rod Rise. They pile in a van and drive out to sunny LA. But Billy is already making sacrifices. He had a girlfriend named Camilla back home in Pennsylvania, and she is not down to follow him to California and sit around while he chases his dreams. Billy leaves with a broken heart and a lot of songs to write. By 1972, the six have caught the eye of producer Teddy Price and been signed for a record deal with Runner Records. Now that he has a fancy record deal, Billy calls Camilla and asks her to marry him, and she agrees. Meanwhile, Daisy is hitting the drugs hard. Her whole diet is basically pills, coke, and champagne, and she's writing songs. She's found a manager named Hank, who also got her a record deal with Runner Records. But Daisy is not really into it. They only want her to sing songs they've written, and she wants her own music produced. She doesn't really want to sing, she wants to write. She throws a real fit about it, but eventually agrees to be a professional and record the album with the promise of writing her own songs for the next one. In 1973, the six are going on tour. Billy finds out the night before the tour that Camilla is pregnant, and the self-doubt starts to set in. He didn't have a strong father figure, and he fears that he will be a bad dad because he didn't have a good example. Right after the tour starts, he gets too into drinking and drugs and starts having affairs with groupies. After six months on the road, Camilla comes to surprise him one night at a show and catches him in the act. She gives him until their baby is born to sort his shit out, which he takes as an excuse to get addicted to heroin and sleep with more women. On the day his daughter is born, Billy finds himself high outside the hospital with his producer Teddy, 
and two choices. Sober up and go see his daughter or go to rehab. He chooses rehab. Two months later, he is home with his wife and daughter, sober and ready to start over. The six begin recording a new album, and Teddy suggests that a song Billy wrote, Honeycomb, would be better as a duet. He recommends bringing in Daisy Jones to sing the female part, and the record is a hit. It becomes the most popular track on the album, and Daisy tours with the six as their opener. The management team is convinced Daisy Jones and the six are a dream team. They need a whole album together. This idea doesn't go over well with Billy. Daisy is still into hard drugs. She's always high, and he feels that being around her is bad for his sobriety, as well as a threat to his control over the band. Unfortunately, he gets outvoted. Daisy is what's best for the band, so Billy has to put up with it. He and Daisy spend the next several months writing songs for the album together, and it's great. The other band members provide their own ideas, but it's clear Billy and Daisy are the real creative team here. Daisy crosses the line, however, when she attempts to kiss Billy during a writing session. He immediately leaves, going home to his wife, and Daisy is furious, writing an angry breakup song called Regret Me. She wants it on the album, and while Billy protests, he is once again outvoted. From then on, the rivalry between Billy and Daisy is cemented. With the album finished, the band splits up for little vacations. Graham and Karen are dating now, so they spend the months shacked up together. Billy spends time with his family, Eddie and Pete go home to the East Coast, Warren gets a boat, and Daisy, on the other hand, goes to Thailand and marries an Italian prince named Nikki. Nikki is a gold digger, a drug addict, and a jealous pain in the ass. During this time, Teddy and Billy do all the sound mixing on the album, and they change a lot. When the band all reassembles to listen to the finished product, Eddie is furious about it. He's sick of Billy acting like he is the boss just because he's the front man, and he feels like Billy doesn't respect him as a fellow musician. Meanwhile, Billy tells a magazine reporter that he hates Daisy Jones, and now everyone is talking about it. Daisy Jones and the Six begin their 1978 Aurora tour, and drama is everywhere. Billy and Daisy can't even be in the same room, Eddie is ready to smack Billy at any second, and Karen and Graham are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy. No one is happy, but the band is selling out stadiums and winning awards. Then, their producer Teddy dies of a heart attack. Chicago, July 12th, 1979. In the wake of Teddy's death, the band is falling apart. They're ready to play their first stadium show since he died, and no one is okay. Karen has chosen to have an abortion, and Graham can't handle that choice. He seeks out Billy for emotional support, but Billy is too wrapped up in his own problems to hear him out. Eddie is just generally angry. Pete wants to do something else with his life. Billy is fumbling without Teddy, who was basically his tether to sobriety. He finds himself at the bar with a drink in front of him. Meanwhile, Daisy is having a meltdown in the hotel hallway and gets a pep talk slash wake up call from Camilla, who tells her to take a break and get clean. Billy realizes he also needs to take a break from the band, spend time with his family, and not fall off the wagon. The tour is cancelled, and the band breaks up forever. The book ends with a Where Are They Now segment. Karen went on to play keyboard in other bands for 20 years. Warren married a celebrity, they have kids. Pete moved back to Boston and got married to his longtime girlfriend. Eddie became a music producer. Graham has a wife and kids, and his own hot sauce brand. 
Daisy got clean, became a writer, adopted children. Billy and Camilla had a long and happy marriage. They moved to North Carolina and lived in a house they built just for themselves and raised their daughters. Daisy and Billy never spoke again after Chicago. Now that we've covered the bones of the story, we'll go over our notes. But first, a quick ad break. This time around, we're going to do things a little differently. You see, as much as we tried, we didn't have any glaring negatives for this book. So instead of our usual format of going over what works and then what doesn't, we'll be giving you five reasons we think you should read Daisy Jones and the Six. So let's start with the writing style and the way the story was set up, because I thought that was one of the biggest draws for this story. The story is told through exclusively dialogue as it's set up in the form of an interview. And so you'll get kind of a script-like narrative where you'll get a character's name and they'll speak on an event and then you'll get another character who will speak on the same event. And so you'll be getting different POVs throughout the story for all of the different speaking characters as they recollect on the events of the story. And you can also see kind of where they either misremember something, exaggerate something, straight up lie. And I think it's just a really interesting way to tell the story. Yeah, it's very mockumentary style, but in print. Mm -hmm. And that is a really fun way to read this book. Yeah. Reason number two, the 70s rock and roll nostalgia. Yeah, you'd think there wouldn't be a lot of setting for this story since setting isn't written down described other than what the characters contribute themselves. But you really do feel the 70 vibes. You do, because as they describe where they are and what they're doing at any given point, like the parties that Daisy describes going to, and even just like the casual way they talk about drugs, that's a really big one is the casual way they talk about drugs. They talk about like, oh, well, you know, there was Coke. So, you know, if Coke was in front of you, you just did Coke. Coke like, must have been in every drawer in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. And like nowadays... When we think about coke and crack and things like that, like, you know, we were raised in the dare generation, <laughs> you know, the just say no generation. So we're like, oh, like cocaine? Like that's one of those after school special moments of like someone <laughs> offers you cocaine and you're like, whoa, where'd you get cocaine? <laughs> Unless you're like used to a drug scene and then you're like, yeah, it's cocaine. Everybody does cocaine. Like once you reach a certain age, you realize a lot more people do cocaine than you thought. <laughs> um, but in this, it's just like, it's that era. Everybody's smoking pot. Everyone's doing cocaine. Everyone's drunk all the time. Everyone's on pills. Because nobody was at that level yet of like, hey, maybe we should be a little more careful with these things. And you know, people talk about the drug culture in Hollywood now, that everyone's still on things. Mm -hmm. But... It's written like it was just so much more casual. And there's also, you know, they talk about the fashions. They describe Daisy Jones and her hoop earrings and her bangles and the fact that she never wore a bra. <laughs> and they talk about Warren's big old mustache and <laughs> all kinds of things like that. And it's just like, you get the very, like, you get the vibe. It's very 70s Hollywood. It's cool. It's a cool vibe. Yeah. 
I really felt immersed in not only the way Hollywood used to look, but also how people used to act and just... I need a better word than vibes. <laughs> the, the mindset. The mindset, yes. <laughs> the general mindset of people in this scene in the 70s. And it's it's also not just the 70s thing, but the Hollywood vibe of it too. Mm -hmm. Of just like, there are certain things that to us normies, <laughs> like, you don't even think about what that might be like. Like, there's this crazy house party that they describe that Daisy has at her place. And just like, she's on so many drugs. She's floating in the pool in this designer gown. There's people everywhere. She goes into her bedroom and there's just two guys making out in her bed. And it's all treated as just like, yeah, this is just a party. And like, I've never been to a party like that. <laughs> I've only ever seen parties like that in movies and heard about them in like magazines and stuff. And it's, it puts you in that moment. And you're like, wow, like for these people, this is just Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're someone like me who really enjoys reading celebrity stories, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it really did kind of dive into the celebrity culture of the times. Yeah, and it doesn't shy away from the dark side of it. Oh yeah. While also showing you how you can get so easily wrapped up in the glamour. Mm-hmm. Okay, reason number three, the audiobook. So this kind of ties back into the way the story is told through all these different characters telling their story of how the band got together and what happened during the breakup. And this story was turned into a full cast audiobook, which means that every character is voiced by a different voice actor, everyone's distinctive. It's like listening to an interview. You keep track of the characters' voices and then they don't even need to tell you at the beginning of every switch of characters who's talking because you know who they are. And that format works so well for an audiobook and I would highly recommend reading the story as an audiobook. And I did appreciate that whenever we are switching POVs after like a long gap, they do still say their names. Yeah. Like we know who's talking most of the time. Like if Billy's been going on for five pages and then Warren's gonna pop in and be like, I have something to say. He'll pop in and be like, this is Warren. And then he'll say his piece. But if we're going back and forth between multiple like people telling the same story, then we don't do that as much because, like you said, we can tell their voices. Yeah, like we get a reminder every now and then of the character's name before they start their dialogue. And I think in the beginning it could be a little confusing if you're not too good with voices, but you definitely get into it after a while and you learn who's who. Yeah, I think the big thing is you have to learn who each character is, and then once you learn who each character is, even if you miss a name, especially with some of the much more distinctive characters like Warren. Mm -hmm. Warren is one of those characters that, you know what, I'll talk about it in part four. Reason number four, <laughs> the characters. Bouncing off the audiobook, the characters themselves are all very distinctive. Even though this is told in a dialogue format, and it could be very easy to over-exaggerate the dialogue in an attempt to differentiate it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen. Each character is unique in their perspective, and you can tell whether you're reading or listening who each person is 
but at the same time there's no moment where you're like oh wow they really went hard on like giving that character a stupid accent so that we would know who they were or something like that yeah, i love the voice actress for jay jones yeah she's, she's so distinctive and she really fleshes out the character with the way that she portrays her kind of gravelly voice yeah and the dialogue from daisy jones as it's written is also really cool she has this one quote that i loved of right after she's realized that her assignment with runner records doesn't let her do her own songs she mentions that you know she didn't actually read the contract and the line she says is i didn't want to read contracts and figure out who i had to pay money to who and when and then she says I wanted to write songs and get high. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a very simple, straightforward line, but it stuck with me because I was like, yeah, that tells us everything we need to know about this character. She has these big aspirations, but she doesn't want to do any of the work. She just wants to write songs and get high. Mm -hmm. And it shows you, you know, that's a very early chapter. It shows you very early on what one of the big problems is going to be because We've just seen in the chapter before that Billy is willing to do all the work. I mean, this is a man who is just going out of his way to do everything to climb the ladder of success. But that's also kind of his major flaw because his band complains about him being overly controlling. Yeah, and he makes this big deal about how, you know, it's not my band, it's everybody's band. But then he also makes all the decisions and gets really upset anytime anybody else wants to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so you have, you know, Daisy, who is all about, you know, the artistry and the eclecticness and the fun. And then Billy, who's all about like, no, this is about the craft. This is about the work. Mm -hmm. And you put these two together and you just know it's going to be oil and water. And it explodes in such a beautiful way. Like, the central conflict of the story is the tension between Daisy and Billy. Yeah. And it's also about how they treat people. Mm -hmm. Billy is so big on trying to treat the people he cares about with love and respect. And his career is constantly pulling him away from that. And he's having to constantly push himself back into that. Whereas Daisy kind of doesn't treat anybody with love or respect. She is very selfish. Even the people that she purports to care about, like her best friend Simone, she's selfish. At one point she reaches out to Simone because she's in Thailand. She's miserable, she's on drugs, she's thinking she wants to get clean, all kinds of things. And she reaches out to Simone, she's like, Simone, I need your help. And Simone gets on a plane to fly to Thailand, and by the time she gets there, Daisy has fucked off to Italy. Yeah. Because that's how little Daisy Jones cares about other people at that point in her life. But at the same time, it's interesting because the sound technician on their album talked about how great she was to work with and how polite she was to crew members. Yeah. Like, she's not hostile to her band. Yeah, she's like, she's a nice person. She's just a selfish person. Mm -hmm. And especially because she's on all these drugs, she doesn't think forward about consequences. Meanwhile, you have Billy who had his struggles with drugs and alcohol so early on, and now he's sober. And everything about his character from that point on is about his sobriety and about his family and about keeping everything together and being in control. And Daisy doesn't want to be in control. 
that's the exact opposite. Everything she does is to keep herself from having to be in control. Mm-hmm. Oh, to keep herself distant from her life. So yeah, the way those two offset each other is really great. And then all the background characters and their personalities play really well into the conflict. Yes, like, even though the story is primarily focused around Billy and Daisy, the background characters aren't left to the side, they feel like they have their own lives going on, everyone is doing something, and, like, I kind of didn't see the climax coming, even though it was so well developed, but you realize, kind of, at their last concert, oh my gosh, everything's coming together, everyone in the band is unhappy, everyone is about to quit, Except poor Warren, who's going to be totally taken by surprise. Yeah, Warren's Warren's such a great guy because he's clearly the only one that didn't give a fuck about any of the drama. He just wanted to be in a rock band. Mm-hmm. And he's he's my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Or everything about him is just so chill. And also, he's a nice palate cleanser. Yes, I also kind of appreciate how he's a casual drug user in a story that's very centered around addiction and yet it doesn't affect him at all. Yeah. Like, you really could... How do I say this? It doesn't have to become a problem. Yeah. If you can manage it, but Daisy and Billy can't manage it. Exactly. Him, Graham, and Karen, but mostly him and sometimes Karen, they all kind of casually use drugs here and there. Eddie and Pete at one point or another, too. They all smoke pot, they all drink alcohol, they all do a little coke now and then. At one point, I think Karen and Warren both try peyote. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all doing a little bit of the drugs here and there. You know, they drop acid sometimes, things like that. But, like you said, none of them let it go too far. Like, I kind of appreciate that a story about addiction didn't get preachy. Yeah, there was this kind of idea of like, hey, you know, a little pot now and then, a little booze, a little party. Have fun, but keep that balance and warren karen eddie pete graham they're all able to keep that balance it's just billy and daisy that cannot mm-hmm. and that is that's how it is for addicts you know they can't make that balance there is no just a little bit for them mm-hmm. and i thought that was very realistic yeah who was your favorite character Warren. Oh yeah, hands down. Yeah, Warren was my favorite character. I, another thing I really like about the characters of this book, mm-hmm. and you know, this character section is going to be long because there's so much to talk about with them. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like characters is the number one draw to the story, aside from the unique storytelling device. Yeah, but I love the way women are depicted in this book, mm-hmm. because you have this very unique foil with Daisy, Camilla, and Karen. Those are our three main women. We also have Simone, but she's kind of more off to the side. Daisy, Camilla, and Karen all portray three different types of womanhood in this world. Mm -hmm. Camilla is a housewife. Everything is for her family. Everything is for her girls and her husband. And she's a tough broad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, she's, she's very firm about... Most of us nowadays would look at what Billy did and say she should have left him. Mm-hmm. But Camilla never does. No, and I love what Camilla says, which is, you don't have the right to run my future. Yeah. You are gonna get clean because I said so. Exactly. She stands by, she's like, no, no, no. We made vows. We made a baby. So now 
you are going to be the man you promised me you would be. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very cool. Yeah, like she's holding him accountable, but at the same time, she is willing to forgive. Yeah, she's willing to forgive, and she does support him. She stands by him. And I appreciate that outlook on things, because I think it's a very modern sort of idea of, like, the moment someone fucks up, you just run away. Mm-hmm. And her willingness to stay and be like, no, I'm staying because I do love you, and I know you're better than this. And I'm gonna stay here and make you be better than this. Mm-hmm. And Billy is willing to be better. Before her, he makes himself better. He fixes his shit. Mm-hmm. And that was a very mature look at a marriage then you have daisy jones you know the it girl Mm -hmm. whose whole thing is you know she's just she's the girl everyone wants to be but she doesn't want to be her yeah her life's been pretty terrible she was a child raised in a deeply neglectful environment which has kind of spurred on everything that she's done since then yeah and then she's abused by multiple men from the time she's a teenager Mm -hmm. You know, she talks about how being a teenager in the free love movement was kind of traumatizing for her because she was a young girl being told, you know, if you don't like sex, you're a prude and things like that. So now there's these older adult men having sex with her. Mm -hmm. And even if she doesn't want to have sex with them, she feels like she has to because she doesn't want to be, you know, one of those prudish, frigid girls. She has, she wants to be cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something we hear a lot about nowadays. We hear about all these rock stars and stuff who sleep with underage groupies. And we're seeing that from her perspective. And also, you know, these men, they don't just use her for her body. They use everything. The man that takes her virginity also steals song lyrics from her and writes a number one hit song with her lyrics and doesn't credit her. Mm -hmm. So from Daisy's side, we see a girl who's being everything that the cool girl of the time is supposed to be and she's completely miserable about it Mm -hmm. then we have karen who is doing everything she can to not be daisy to not be the it girl to not be a sex symbol to not be seen as a female musician and we see how no matter how much she tries to resist her own femininity, and as much as she tries to make people see her as just a musician, not a female musician, they still do. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't even dislike Daisy. They're friends. Yeah, they're buddies. You know, she she mostly just gets annoyed at the way other people treat Daisy. She supports Daisy's right to be a hoe or whatever. <laughs> Um, she talks about how, you know, there's this, there's this photo shoot they do at one point, and Daisy's wearing this white tank top and no bra, and Karen notices that the photographer is just taking pictures of Daisy's boobs, and she's like, oh my god, this whole photo shoot is going to end up being about Daisy's breasts, and she's not mad at Daisy, she's like, Daisy can walk around with no bra on if she wants to, she's mad that this photographer is now going to make what is supposed to be a photo shoot about their band, all about Daisy's breasts. Yeah. And so it's cool to see this kind of balance of these three different women all living in this same world and kind of residing in the same space, but having three completely different experiences. 
But they don't hate each other. They don't attack each other. They don't get catty. Yeah, they're all friends. Even, even Daisy and Camilla, despite the fact that Daisy kissed her husband, <laughs> Camilla still is kind to Daisy. She trusts Daisy with her children at one point. There is no women attacking women going on here. It's not what you'd expect. Mm -hmm. Like, there's nuance and maturity to the way they're portrayed. Yeah. And the same goes with the men, actually. Even when the men are having rivalries, you know, when Eddie and Billy are mad at each other because of, you know, their professional differences, there's none of this, like, alpha male testosterone, you know, let's punch each other in the face and then hug about it or whatever. <laughs> like, it's a professional disagreement and they treat it like a professional disagreement. Yeah, I understood where Eddie was coming from the whole time <laughs> because consistently he would be the one band member that Billy never goes to and never asks questions about the band and never considers his feelings. He's like, Billy treats Eddie terribly. Yeah, and they mention it very early on that it's because Eddie is Chuck's replacement. Mm -hmm. Eddie was only ever supposed to be temporary, but then Chuck died. Yeah. And Eddie became permanent. And Billy never respected Eddie because of that. Mm -hmm. Eddie was just along for the ride. And Billy was never aware of the way he was dismissing Eddie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really fun part of it, is those different perspectives. You can see the same thing from Eddie and Billy. And Eddie will be like, yeah, he told me to go fuck myself. And Billy will be like, I politely told him no. <laughs> I think there's a scene when they're all on the plane and they all discuss, like, one-on-one -on -one with Billy whether or not to add Daisy to the band. <laughs> Except Eddie. Yeah, Eddie's... He never consults Eddie. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, I think we can head into our fifth and final reason, which is the rereadability. We actually didn't give away a twist this time. Mm-hmm. Like, for your sakes and because it was just too good. But there is a twist at the end, which recontextualizes everything about the information Billy has been given out and his POV during this entire experience. Not just Billy, but some of the other band members, too. That's true. Like, the twist allows you to recontextualize and rethink everything that happens in the book so you just go back and reread it mm -hmm. and because the book is so dense with different perspectives and constantly switching pov you're able to get something different out of it every time you reread it yeah and i like to think about it like if you ever rewatch a movie mm -hmm. you know how there's some people they'll go back and they'll rewatch a movie but they'll choose to only focus on one specific side character like okay now we're gonna go watch uh What's a movie with lots of stuff in it? <laughs> the only thing I can think of is Hamilton right now. Y Hamilton, sure. Look, we're gonna go watch Hamilton filmed on screen, but this time around, we're gonna only watch this backup dancer. We're not gonna focus on the main characters, we're gonna watch this character. This time, we're only gonna focus on Peggy and what Peggy's doing. Something like that. And you get a whole different experience. This book is the same way. Because the first time you read it, you're focused on Billy and Daisy. Mm -hmm. It's Daisy Jones and the Six, so you're really focused on Daisy. Mm -hmm. And then you're focused on Billy because he's the second biggest page person. But if you go back and reread it and you're like, okay, this time I'm only focusing on what Karen says. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is background noise. I'm reading them for context, but I'm focusing on Karen's storyline. 
and what everybody else says about Karen and what Karen has to say about everyone else. Mm-hmm. It's suddenly a recontextualized story. And you could do that with every narrating character. Yeah. Like, I didn't even notice that one of the band members was missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was Pete. Pete, yeah, Pete. We don't actually get Pete's POV. He declined an interview. But I didn't notice. <laughs> because Eddie speaks for Pete all the time. He says, I was thinking this and this and this, and then Pete also agreed with me. Mm-hmm. Or Pete was saying this, or Pete thought that. Because they're brothers, so he speaks for Pete. But then at the end, it mentions, like, you know, during the where are they now, it's like, Pete declined for an interview. He lives on the East Coast, he's married, now he declined an interview. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, what? how right. did I not notice? Because he feels like a complete character. You feel like you've heard from him. Mm-hmm. But then you look back and you're right. You're like, oh, right. Pete never actually spoke to us at any point. We just heard other people talk about Pete. Mm-hmm. So if you can go back and reread the story... And be like, okay, like, let's just focus on Pete. Who talks about Pete? When do they talk about Pete? Why do they talk about Pete? That's a whole nother contextualization for this book. You could reread this book. You know, there's seven main characters. You could reread this book seven times mm-hmm. and get a different experience each time if you focus on a different character each time. Yeah, you could also experiment going from a hard copy into the audiobook to see how the experience is different. Mm-hmm. Like, you can get a lot of mileage out of this book. Yeah. So obviously, this was a 5 out of 5 read for us. Mm-hmm. I give it 5 out of 5 platinum records. Mm-hmm. 5 out of 5 hoop earrings. Mm-hmm. Daisy loves those hoop earrings. <laughs> As always, our ratings are subjective. Give us your notes at Twitter, at Couple of Notes. And to get a shout out in an upcoming episode and supply us with red pens, support us on Patreon, now with ad-free early access episodes, at www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet back here after after the the next chapter. chapter.